in the 11FS offices in London for episode 130 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you, where does Libra go from here? Telegram's ton takes another blow, and the Venezuelan president goes all in on Petros. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Oliver Van Landsberg Sedi, who's the CEO at BCB. How are you doing, Oliver? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on here again, Simon. No, thank you for being involved. Just remind everybody who's not familiar who BCB are. Sure. We are a business banking challenger. You probably might have known us as a broker or a prime broker in the cryptocurrency space, but now we're providing the payment rails for many exchanges and market makers who struggle to move money. And people really do struggle to move money, so you're providing a service that people really need by the sounds of it. I, I think so. Um, and uh, again, I'd like to uh, go one level deeper and have a look at what 11FS is doing in this market, because I think we can do some interesting things. Who knows? Um, foreshadowing, maybe. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's see what comes in the future. Um, but there's a lot of news to get to before we can get to that exciting stuff. Um, first and foremost, just before we get into the news, though, um, in 2020, Blockchain Insight is actually going to be coming to you every two weeks, Thursday at 4 p.m. Well, because at 11FS, we're starting a bunch of new podcasts in 2020. There's so much news and so much fintech out there. Uh, so please do keep your eyes and ears open peeled, um, although that's an interesting mental image to peel your ears. Um, righty, let's get on with the news. The first story this week comes from The Telegraph in the UK, and uh, this is a bit more of an op-ed piece, uh, looking back at sort of Facebook's Libra. The title reads, How Facebook's Vision for Libra Turned into a Nightmare. And it's been quite interesting. So the article outlines how Libra's vision has been challenged from the very start and compares it to the friction at which the euro was first met with and proposed, which is pretty interesting. Then came Operation Stop Libra with the likes of MasterCard and Stripe pulling out um, and pretty much every senator in the US and uh, European regulator objecting, the People's Bank of China objecting and having some real concerns uh, as well as politicians across the globe. Uh, and, and it ends on a high note, this article, however. It says uh, they're talking through how Libra could still win out. Uh, US Senator Sherrod Brown, for example, is quoted as saying that there are risks but the upside is equivalent to being asked to join OPEC when oil was first discovered. Interesting quote there. So what should we expect from Libra in 2020, do you think, Oliver? I think uh, we can certainly expect uh, the this massive entity with its massive social network to continue to capitalize on what it has there. Because for me, the fundamental value of any of these cryptocurrencies or, or blockchain projects is is directly driven by the the size of the network, which Facebook has clearly nailed over the last um, dozen years. Um, it's never a straight line, whether you're a startup, um, uh, you know, or a um, or, or a social network. And uh, you know, I think if we have a, a quick look at the kind of Libra timeline, um, it paints a curve that looks like we've you know we've peaked <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, probably back in June, uh, and and is now heading downhill, but. It actually more, much more closely resembles the you know the you know kind of a, a startup or an or an adoption curve. So uh, just a, a quick recap of that Libra timeline. Um, you know when all the crypto buzz uh, was buzzing in 2017, Morgan Bella was tinkering with blockchain uh, at um, at Facebook, and then he was joined in 2018 by the uh, Facebook Messenger exec David Marcus, and then in 2019, in the beginning of last year, they. They already amassed 50 developers. Um, I wish I had 50 developers. We will <laughs> soon, hopefully. Um, 
they uh, at the time it was called um, you know Global Coin or Facebook Coin, wasn't it? Um, June, big announcement. Um, this is where Morgan and David were joined by uh, Kevin Wheel, who who runs the Calibra, um, and uh, it, that was that was quite a big splash. I think we all agree. Um, in July, they started to make some more cautious comments. They're not going to launch without uh, involving regulators, right? Or- Concerns must be met, right? Uh, September comes in. Uh, Zuck confirms this. He says, especially in the US, we're not going to do this without a big thumbs up and a green light from them, right? But also, they, Zuckerberg was asked to stand up in front of the US Senate, um, mm. you know, specifically with this. But at the same time, Facebook had just been reeling from the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. And then on the back of this, Facebook has launched a separate sort of payments capability globally that sort of looks a lot more like you would expect from Paytm in India or Square or Venmo. So they've kind of got their traditional payments play, and then they've got Libra as well. It's almost like they've got these two competing different ways of trying to solve the payments problem, which Mm. for them as a business case would make a lot of sense because if you look at who their global competitors are, you look at everybody like Tencent, WeChat, Alipay, all those guys have uh, a view into India, into Southeast Asia, and into these core growth markets where payments, micropayments, e-commerce is much, much more important than, say, advertising. Uh, and, and that's probably where the next opportunity exists, uh, at least in the short term for Libra. I don't envy Zuck when he was in that position because what he was doing was defending an extremely innovative, leading-edge you know, fintech concept uh, trying to convey that to a, a very old-fashioned traditional set, a, a very you know, um, a difficult audience. Um, you know, we experience the same when we try to onboard a particularly complex entity. You know, we ourselves are at the end of edge of fintech, but when somebody else comes up with an extremely innovative idea, uh, you know, even you know, we're challenged. So I can I can relate to the difficulty in getting such a new, bold thing across to such a conservative. Um, uh, audience, but um, that dynamic is very different in emerging markets. Emerging markets, these fringe markets, you can try new things, and there um, are problems to solve. Um, we we saw this problems. with M-Pesa, right? So, uh, when mobile money was introduced in sort of two thousand six, two thousand seven, uh, there were a lot of markets where you know it was kind of it was seen as risky and pushed back. But in a market where you're reliant on cash, you've got a good chance of getting mugged on your way home. There, most people don't have a bank account. The fact that you can do mobile money is transformative for that economy and for that society. So there are definitely parts of the world where this can make sense. And Libra's stated aim as a foundation that is not Facebook now, that has Spotify and Uber and Airbnb involved, is to solve for that financial inclusion challenge, the 1.8 billion people who don't have access to basic banking services. But there's an interesting question of where do they focus first and is this a defend or a grow strategy? And part of the regulatory pushback was twofold. One, uh, I think there was an expectation that uh, they would launch this thing and switch it on for 2.2 billion users. And what would that mean for the banks? What would that mean for the banking system if 2.2 billion people suddenly had access to a new currency? What's it going to mean to Stripe, MasterCard, Visa, um, Mercado Pago, all of whom What's it going to mean for the economy and global financial stability right. if there was a run on the banks because everybody went out and got Libra? So this this is like existential threat for central banks on one level, but on a pragmatic level, actually when you scratch beneath that sort of like unlikely scenario, there's also some economics that sort of didn't 
stack up. It, it's almost like the economics hadn't been thought through. Was this more like the euro dollar markets? Was this more like the uh, special drawing rights, the SDR from uh, from the International Monetary Fund in the seventies? Like, how was this actually going to work when you look at the economics? And there weren't clear answers. And that vacuum of clear answers is is probably more scary. But in itself, has it achieved? what they set out to achieve, if now central bankers are taking, like China has DECP, um, the European central bankers said they need to develop their own digital euro, um, the uh, the Bank of England and many others, and, and even the uh, kind of the, the Fed have talked about what, what should their equivalent be. Has it achieved its aim, even if, even if we're talking about that now? Whether it has already achieved what it set out to achieve is almost moot because, again, what it has is that massive social network. And what that brings um, is something that is all, is lacking actually in other cryptocurrencies. So one of the biggest concerns and the biggest challenges and risks in this space is, is KYC and AML. It's really understanding um, you know, when crypto world meets traditional world, traditional world wants to know who you are. Facebook really knows who you are. Mm. But do they in the regulated sense, right? So they know who you are, but yet there's lots of fake accounts. Right. They know who you are, except there's lots of fake news. So do they know who you are? So that if you're looking at it from a regulator's perspective, how well do do they know who you are? Can they prevent the risks? And I would argue, how well does your bank know you yeah. <laughs> is a pretty fair question as well. So um, this is going to be an interesting one to watch in, as it keeps developing. But uh, as 2020 grows, it, it feels like the heat's come out of this a little bit, and who knows? Libra well, we've got a few distractions just... uh, now oh, with the yeah. Middle East and with uh, you know with a certain, an entire continent burning. Um, so uh, yes, uh, there, there are bigger issues which are taking the limelight off them. But in the fintech world, um, I think this is a kind of a time to regroup, uh, take a breath, and, uh, and attack um, you know the strategy from from a new angle. I don't see it going away. I see it growing. I think it's. Personally, I think it's a good idea. Mm, here, here. All right. Um, next story comes from the block crypto, and this is about the Binance CEO saying some major strategic acquisitions are in the works for 2020. Uh, so CZ has said that there are two acquisition deals in the pipeline he's very excited about, and these are major and will have significant impact. Because last year, Binance made no less than nine full acquisitions, but only a few were publicly announced. And one of Binance's main goals for 2020 was to bring crypto to the masses, said the CEO. Uh, to that end, the exchange in... Uh, it aims to enable fiat to crypto trading for all 180 fiat currencies available in the world. Pretty bold ambition from Binance. It is, uh, particularly given that um, you know a, a long tail of those currencies are in you know uh, difficult uh, countries. Um, but I think it's always been on the cards that we're going to see this massive period of consolidation. Uh, exchanges, um, market makers, service providers, everybody in the value chain, every you know. There's a lot of mopping up that's going to happen this year. Some natural attrition, some um, kind of organic uh, growth, and so, but but a lot of acquisition, a lot of acquisition that's going to, you know, bring uh, like-minded companies together. And Binance in a peach position to do that. They made a ton of money in 2017 and 2018, uh, and, and they've got their pick of, of acquisition targets. I can definitely see how regulators can be worried about this. Yeah, and that was going to be my my next point is. Why is this worrying? Are they too big? Are they doing some reg arbitrage that makes them look scary? Like, what what would you say a regulator looks at this and sees as as scary? From uh, firsthand experience, the biggest scalability challenge for any crypto engaged company is compliance. Um, so, sure, they've got you know hundreds of thousands, millions of users. Um, 
how are they going to scale up uh, the you know the regulatory compliance to, to meet typical uh, developed market demands? Because compliance works country by country. The rules are different in every country, so therefore I need different people and different processes right. in every it's country. It's expensive. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, but but they are but they acknowledge that, and they and I think they are taking a, a regulatory first approach. Uh, Binance Jersey uh, is a great example of that, and and all of the new Binance entities all look to be you know prop, have proper KYC gateways. Mm. It's going to be interesting to to see if we see more M and A from other players in the market. I think uh, Kraken acquired a good chunk of Circles OTC desk recently. Um, do you think this is a trend that we're going to see a, a lot lot more of? And and do you think that's part of where we are in the market cycle as well? Very much so. I mean, there's still plenty of new startups with great new innovations. But um, uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating watching some of the giants uh, come together because. You know, this time last year, we spoke of Kraken and Circle as competitors, uh, and Kraken OTC just opening their doors to new business. Um, Circle having come, you know, come off twenty five billion dollars worth of business uh, in twenty eighteen, um, and you know, so it was quite fascinating to see that merger of giants. It was definitely, pretty, yeah. More, the OTC, the Circle OTC desk was meaty, and by crypto mm, standards, it was you know, one sure. of the top three, I believe. You know, it was yeah. massive. Uh, to see that move is is really, really significant, and it's it's very rare you see that level of market change that quickly. Um, in your kind of career experience, have you been through cycles like this in the past? And, and how does it start to look in two, three years' time? Do we are we seeing a shrinking market where consolidation has to happen because the opportunity is shrinking, or are we seeing something more cyclical? Uh, if I were really to relate this to my own career, um, my closest points of reference are my twelve years at Barclays, um, having come out of Lehman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so there, the the consolidation was um, for very different impetus. It was, uh, you know, th- the credit markets have done some very bad things, and um, <laughs> you know, big companies are swallowing up collapsed companies. Yeah, um, this is a very different situation, um, or is it? Uh, because a lot of the smaller crypto companies just didn't give a damn about uh, uh, doing things right. They just saw profit first. Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know the ICO bubble had plenty of examples of that. So maybe this is a parallel of that. And where does crypto go? Because post um, financial crisis, the world of financial services has never been the same. And granted, the crypto bubble was never quite on the same scale, but it was still a bubble. Do we do we go into this long, drawn out sort of decade of n- almost no growth in 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 the industry, or do you think that actually something significant is going on? Um, I think the people scrutinizing this most closely are those looking at investment targets. So I think this might seg nicely into your next piece about um, accelerated activity in North America, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where venture capital is flowing fast and furiously, um, not in a balanced way, you know, um, as you've pointed out in the intro, um, it, it, you know, emerging markets have had much less investment uh, than than developed markets in, in, in from a venture point of view. But the point here is um, those analysts are betting not just on the health of the individual companies they're investing in, but in the systemic risk and systemic opportunity. Um, so um, uh, I project um, uh, very, uh, very enthusiastic uh, and uh, bubbling growth over the next uh, couple of years. Interesting. Uh, wh- what do you put that down to? Why, why does 
crypto assets and or this technology space or something have something? Because if if you talk to the uh, the people in fintech at the moment, if you talk to the people in banks, oh, sick of crypto, so lost you. Hmm. So 2017 had a lot of pie-in-the-sky innovative ideas. Let's build a blockchain that does things for other blockchains who are doing things for blockchains. Very meta, very abstract, very much ahead of their time. And mm. there's still a bunch of projects out there like that. So maybe we're entering a phase now where some of those who were ahead of their time in 2017 have a chance in 2020, three years further down the line, to actually be useful in, in a more developed blockchain world. So that's one part of the picture I see developing fast. Mm-hmm. It could be interesting to watch. Well, um, there's there's also, uh, I guess, the, the general constant worry about will this stuff ever get regulated? And when you see um, stories like the next one, which comes from TASS, this is about Venezuela are going to use their own petro currency for oil sales, um, their, their President Maduro says. Um, so the Venezuelan outlet um, has a quote from President Maduro saying, we will sell uh, Venezuelan oil in exchange for petros, the, the currency that Venezuela has created, the digital currency. We already sell Venezuela's iron ore and steel for Petros, and we've got signed contracts for the sale of oil, steel, and iron ore, and aluminum, uh, aluminium, whichever way you want to say it. I've just been around far too many Americans. (laughs) Um, And uh, we'll sell pot of gold for the Petros as well. I mean, it's stories like this that really make regulators worry. It's like that cryptocurrency stuff. It's being used by states that are potentially being sanctioned that uh, are not necessarily states that we um, that we want to see, you know, uh, kind of expanding their ge- uh, their geopolitical influence uh, because of the, the the concerns that a lot of sovereigns have about them and the concerns for the state of the the people and the economy and and, and the, the genuine suffering um, that, that many Venezuelans uh, feel day to day because of the state of their economy. Things like this can't be helpful for for businesses like yours. Um, I honestly, I'm not sure how that impacts. Uh, the, uh, you know, the so we do have a certain degree of systemic exposure, um, mm. which this you know touches on. But um, uh, you know, looking at the Petromoneda story uh, in particular, I mean, the, the oil was the original backing, right? I mean, at first they said they were going to back the Petro with, what was it, um, five billion barrels of oil in their own storage. And then they rolled back to 30 million, a tiny fraction of that. Um, and now they're not using it just as a backing, but but also as a unit of currency to trade it. So it, it, seems, it, it, it seems like it's in line with the, um, you know, at least the, you know, the asset class, the broad uh, original purpose. And it doesn't seem to be affecting the... Um, uh, the retail level man on the streets not using Petro to buy no, no, bread and milk. This is all about being able to sell oil to people elsewhere in the world, po- right. possibly less illicit. So I think but, it's a government printing money again, but yes. just with a different name. That's, I think that's a pretty neat way to summarize it. But can you see why when global regulators say, ah, this crypto stuff, it gives us worries, things like this don't, don't help? It doesn't and, help at and, all. And is there a contagion effect of um, kind of what Venezuela's doing with good old-fashioned Bitcoin, which actually has seemed to, in regulators' eyes, by contrast now, suddenly doesn't seem nearly as scary, although there are still some horror stories that you see popping up here and there? Um, if you look at it from a technical point of view, um, People are understanding Bitcoin a lot more than they used to and appreciating the decentralization of it. Um, of course, you could argue about the centralization of miners and, and, and very niche arguments there. But um, it's very clear that Petro is highly centralized blockchain. So it's not it's, it's not a crypto. But, it's not d- a crypto but does, does the average um, policymaker, regulator, person on the street get that difference, right? So if, if rogue state 
um, arguably, um, develops its own currency, cryptocurrency. How can I tell that apart from Bitcoin? And if all I see is headlines about um, you know, the NHS has been held to ransom and uh, the the way to unlock it is hackers demanding Bitcoin, like that's one piece of a puzzle mm. of which you only see the negative news that sells or you see the price action. You don't necessarily see the nuance that's going on beneath it. Absolutely. I think the best reference point here is the internet itself. Uh, uh, um, if you want to understand the value of the internet, you look at the um, the sheer economic growth that it has created over the last 20 years, um, whilst acknowledging that there are those deep, dark corners who are still doing dodgy things. You know, there will always be criminal activity, however it manifests and wherever it is expressed. So in the internet, you've got the dark web and you've got even, you know, bad stuff happening in a legit web. So, yes, there's plenty of bad stuff to point out in the blockchain world, um, but that's not... Just, but that's that's the human condition. Yeah, indeed, it, it is. All right, well, um, it's, it's time for a quick show. We'll come back to all the world of blockchain and crypto in just a second. Um, this episode is, of course, brought to you by our good friends at R3. Uh, developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any size, type, size, or industry. Uh, with Corda, every business and every industry can leverage the power blockchain. Uh, a free trial of Cordero Enterprise is available now at r3.com. Head over to check it out. I'm sure you will. You'll be checking over, checking out R3. You know those guys? Oh, my goodness. We know. We more than know them. I'm going to jump on your shill there and shill it more because... <laughs> <laughs> shill it like it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we... Uh, so, I mean, our, our entire payments backbone is based on um, uh, Dazzle, which is Cordero-backed, right? Oh. So, um, uh, yeah, no, no we're, we're very much um, Cordero converts. We love R3 and... and uh, our institutional customers are benefiting on a day-to-day basis by what it's doing. It, it is interesting how that whole institutional um, market is evolving um, day by day, week by week, and the vendor landscape has started to change as a result. And uh, as you look at the institutional market, do you see different players entering and, and the size and shape of who you're dealing with now versus 12 months ago changing? For sure. We're seeing um, companies who are you know, looking at traditional models, uh, and instead of replicating them uh, with analogous digital or crypto or blockchain-based models, but actually producing you know genuine uh, innovation. Um, it's interesting you say that. People have moved from this. They started with like taking the paper process and digitizing it. Mm. Um, if you remember when the iPad first came out, you could have the newspaper on the iPad, and you could say, oh, I've got a newspaper on my iPad, and now I have a newspaper that costs $300 to replace. <laughs> it's identical. And, you could scroll <laughs> the entire broadsheet. Uh, but also, like, it run, I have a newspaper that runs out of battery. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, this isn't an upgrade. This is, this is, this is, whereas actually, if you think about what digital becomes, it becomes YouTube and it becomes Twitter and it becomes all of these other different types of manufacturing content mm-hmm. uh, that, that really changes things. And we're starting to see that now in financial services and it's hugely exciting. And yet there's this dense language around it that makes it really hard to, to understand the impact of it sometimes, I think. Absolutely. This is the opportunity to uh, reinvent uh, many pockets of financial services. And the user experience is the first place to benefit. Um, uh, you know, you don't have to build a bank like, uh, you know, any top five British brick and mortar bank. Mm-hmm. Um, you can offer a user experience in which your business or retail user can connect with you as um you know, customer support or operations or, or you know, directly via, via the chat, for example. And many um, neobanks, challenger banks are you know, using that to great effect. Indeed. 
Alrighty. Um, next story comes from Cointelegraph, and this is about IBM uh, and a fair trade initiative demo for blockchain-based coffee tracking. Um, so this is at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. IBM and Pharma Connect, an organization committed to increasing the transparency and sustainability in agriculture supply chains, demoed a blockchain-based app that allows consumers to learn about the coffee beans they purchase. Um, the Thank My Farmer mobile app provides consumers with an interactive map to show the journey of their coffee bean by scanning a QR code. And the app allows farmers, wholesalers, traders, and retailers to interact more efficiently while providing consumers with insights and transparency about the origins of their coffee products. Hmm. Hmm. Seems quite neat. Sounds cool. This is where I'm going to fall on this. I th- I, I, this is either f- brilliant marketing or um, or it's brilliant truth. Ooh, um, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it is on the marketing side of things, then what this is is a database. Yeah, uh, where um, you know this is being controlled centrally or even semi-centrally. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, if, if this is in fact farmers, wholesalers, traders, retailers um, contributing their bit of the, the supply chain, saying, "Hey, I stamped this bag of beans. I ground it. I yeah. served it. Um, I drank it." Um, and if that was, you know, decentrally validated, that's interesting. That's a blockchain-based coffee supply chain thing. And if that's what it is, that's awesome. But if it's not, then it's just marketing. It, it is hard to tell with press releases. But I, I suspect having talked to IBM at Money 2020 and again at Cybos, there's there's been this real move away from, hey, it's just a database that we run centrally to which we provide the tech. But not no, there's no one administrator of the whole thing. People administrate their little bit, but they're still able to have this end-to-end process process from the farmer to the transport to the distributor to the retailer uh, to the end consumer where nobody owns all of it mm-hmm. and i think that's what's exciting is there's not one sort of like central body that's giving out the the things it's it's the data that's moving and it's the it's the crypto certificates that are moving and mm. that transparency could be could be really really interesting but then that's lovely tech, but what does it mean to you and me? If I'm going to buy a coffee, do I get a blue tick next to my coffee? That says, like, how do I make that real for people? Wow, that's a great question. Um, maybe if we look at it as a supply chain social network and we map social network experiences onto uh, that product, um, then we can see how that's going to evolve. And then you're going to get your blue ticks and your likes and your comments and your shares. Mm. Um uh, and and that'll be internally validating for it. Uh, it's like um, proven or like validated metadata, validated mm. sources, and like how do I how do I make that real to you? Because um, do you, there's there's this weird sort of ethereal thing about like do I uh, do I know that that's been validated? How do I trust that it's been validated? Because you can tell me there's some great cryptography going on mm. in the background, mm. but like what does that look like to mom and pop and to to everybody on the street? Like that's a but maybe that matters less than what uh, than how it impacts those people along the supply chain. That's a really good because point. there's two ways to look at it. One, you can look at the supply chain and go, oh, that's very interesting. My beans came from wherever yeah. by that farmer. Cool. And the other way is that, oh, I am that farmer. And yes, I played a part in this and I'm directly benefiting. I'm not I've getting got cheated. paid better and I can see it's, what the price yeah. it was sold for. And True I think that, that transparency yeah. is, is, is completely different. And then if you can do that, you can show that to the consumer. I think that's powerful. All right, next story comes from The Block. And this is about North America, as you alluded to earlier, seeing the most crypto and blockchain investment in 2019. Um, 
Block Genesis show that the staggering majority of industry investment occurred in Asia, North America, and Europe. No big surprise. Um, these regions saw activity that dwarfed the number of developments in Oceania, South America, and Africa. Again, no great surprise there. As the Block's John Dattione noted, despite the narrative of blockchain technology, quote, banking the unbanked, uh, regions that need the improvements to its financial infrastructure the most, uh, such as South America and Africa, represented less than 1% of deals. Um, there is something interesting there about money seems to, you know, and investment capital seems to flow where the investment capital already is. There's uh, this democratizing force of blockchain and financial services just doesn't seem to have hit. I think where money will flow will m- map onto um, what a good uh, portfolio, diversified portfolio looks like. And in a good diversified portfolio, you have a portion allocated to highly risky assets. Mm. Um, so if uh, you know, if if you look at the world <laughs> economy as a as a global investment portfolio. Um, there's going to be that risk-reward um, dynamic where the highly risky emerging markets also generate the highest returns, mm-hmm. but you're going to want that high-risk profile. Because you can even have high losses as well. Like exactly, high-risk equals yeah. high potential for loss. You're not going to want that to be 50% of your portfolio. You're going to want it to be 5 or 10% max of your portfolio. And maybe the, you know, the, 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 the flow of invest, investment in Asia, North America, and EU dwarfing Oceania, South America, Africa – is simply a reflection of that. But we, but we have seen, of course, um, the, the tech scenes generally uh, in, in emerging markets really start to come on quite some way. I mean, um, Brazil has an unbelievable fintech scene and, uh, and challenger banks that are some of the largest in the world starting to emerge. We're seeing you know, mobile money really is a pan-African story in an India and China story um, much more than it is a Europe or a US story. Um, so perhaps there's potential for that to change. For sure. And if it doesn't, um, it's a massive missed opportunity. Uh, the rewards are there where um, where the actual needs are greatest, where the use cases are most profoundly felt by you know, by those people. Is um, there something to be said for the narrative of banking the unbanked being a little sort of long in the tooth and, and uh, kind of hopeful, uh, aspirational and or even disingenuous? Or even archaic. Um, mm. I, I, this, uh, I'm not inventing a phrase when I talk about um, unbanking the banked, mm. uh, <laughs> which is uh, probably what's really going to happen. Interesting. Tell me more. Uh, well, do we actually need the brick and mortar banks? Uh, we don't. What we what, what do people need to do? They don't need to earn interest and um, uh, uh, have a checking account as much as they need to move money from A to B. Mm-hmm. So, or have a safe place to keep it. Right. And, uh, yeah, have a, have a safe – yeah, exactly. But uh, does that well, need a big marble building with, in the center of town to, and uh, friendly no, people? that's the point exactly, yeah. So um, the next wave is um, saying, well, yes, you need financial services and it needs to be uh, smart and it needs to be decentralized so that no central government can go and yank your own savings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't need to be a bank. That was the original vision uh, behind a lot of the folks in crypto is be your own bank. But um, I think what you're suggesting is actually that's one end of the spectrum and the banking industry today is the other end of the spectrum and maybe there's stuff in the middle of those two. Mm. I think that's where we're trying to position. Oh. Uh, all right, next story comes from Forbes, and this is the um, Secretary General from the United Nations uh, says that the UN must embrace 
blockchain. Um, so he says the intergovernmental giant needs to embrace blockchain in a statement provided to uh, Forbes by the Secretary General's office. He also touted blockchain as a crucial component of the organization that generates $50 billion in revenue annually. Um, the UN Children's Fund has also started accepting Bitcoin and Ethereum donations for some of its projects. Um, I think this statement from um, Gutierrez shows that the cryptocurrency and underlying blockchain technology is being seriously explored at the highest levels of these organizations around the world. Do you think it's, um, how serious do you think that is? Do you think it's, um, hey, this could solve some problems for us because it's hard to move money in emerging markets? Or do you think this is uh, the equivalent of bank does press release about doing a thing in blockchain in 2017? Uh, I, I think it's a serious terms. I think, you know, there's no organization um, that's more cross-border and decentralized than than the United Nations. Um, and the... You know, as we were talking about, the original vision of cryptocurrencies is, um, you know, finds a natural home uh, with, with the UN's um, uh, set of, uh, of needs. I mean, there's so many, so, you know, the, the UN's work is most keenly felt in those areas which are poorest and have the least organized governments, right? Um, so if you have blockchain solutions that are uh, addressing problems like uh, aid, um, and uh, you know identity um, remittance, um, then um, it has a much you know better chance of of, of improving the, the lives of the people that it affects. Indeed. Well, let's hope that uh, something like this uh, does start to gain some traction, and if it does actually solves the problem it's set out to solve. Um, you know, these intergovernmental agencies with the sustainable development goals, the, the UN sustainable development goals, there's a lot of lofty ambitions and the world has a lot of problems. So uh, if if this tech could start to make a difference for people, um, you know, th- there could be real benefits. Mm, for sure. All right, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Story from the independent Iran crisis. The Bitcoin price surges amid growing tensions with the US. Did you see a surge in volume? We saw a surge in volume and price. I think we ticked up to 8K briefly today. We're now back into kind of seven, seven, eight hundreds, but um, there's definitely a bullish um, undercurrent. Mm, interesting. Um, story from the block, uh, Qatar bans crypto trading. Um, maybe maybe opposite pressures, but uh, interesting how different governments are, uh, are responding to, to this space. It'll always be polarizing. It will. Uh, all right, Cointelegraph, Bitcoin can hit 50K in 2020 very easily, the next uh, oh, CEO tells Bloomberg. Um, are we not done with these like ridiculous um, price estimates? I'm always hard pressed to put a price estimate out there, um, but I don't think Nexo CEO and Tony is uh, is is far off. I think I think we could see that, um, especially because if you look at the, the log halving? scale. That's always been a, a very uh, reliable predictor of massive rallies. And just um, explain for listeners who may not be familiar, I'm sure most are, with what the halving is. It's when uh, the, um, the 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 distribution of Bitcoin at each block that is mined is halved. So currently it's 12 and a half. So we're going to see each new block that gets mined issue 6.75 new Bitcoins. So if I'm uh, an organization, uh, it used to be individuals, but now a company that mines Bitcoin professionally, I have rooms full of servers and I mine Bitcoin, 
Bitcoin, I used to get, uh, or I currently do get 12 and a half Bitcoin for every um, successful uh, kind of uh, proof of work I'm able to provide. Uh, but uh, we're going to move to, I guess, uh, 6.25. So that's the, the halving. Uh, right. The so 6.25, my math was off there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, exactly. But the cost of my machines hasn't changed, right? So I'm yeah. still crunching the same amount of data with the same amount of electricity, which costs me the same price. But I'm getting um, less Bitcoin. But I'm getting less Bitcoin for it. So there has to be a rebalancing effect where um, because of the constriction of supply and because my cost basis think the only way the only way it's going to make it worth it for me to do that is if I sell those Bitcoins which I've mined at a at a better price. Interesting to see. All right. Um, and story from the block, Beijing authorities issue warning, firms must not conduct crypto business. Um, China, um, definitely with its DECP initiative, is is definitely trying to get its arms around um, technologies for its own benefit, it seems. It's the most schizophrenic uh, Bitcoin opinion uh, we have in the world, is, is China flip-flopping yeah. um, for the last 12 years. Let's see uh, if it continues. We'll see more of that. Story from The Independent, Gibraltar launches the world's first license for fintech firms using blockchain. I need to get closer to that. Do you know anything about it? Uh, I read the Gibraltar DLT framework for custody in great detail, and I love what they're doing. Um, it's a shame that they have such a small footprint, um, but they, you know, they, they do set a good example. Yeah. All right, uh, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from Spencer Noon, who is, uh, familiar enough, uh, at Spencer Noon on Twitter. He says, massive blow to dollar ton investors as Telegram announces its cryptocurrency won't be integrated natively into the Messenger app, but rather in a standalone wallet. 90 plus percent of the investment thesis was ton having Telegram as its distribution channel. Uh, although it's probably worth saying that um, Telegram raised uh, 1.7% billion US dollars in its ICO in 2017 for the TUN token. And a big part of that would be this was the currency inside of a chat app. Um, what do you think an investor would see looking at this? And what do you think a regulator would see looking at this? I think an investor would say, you've got enough money to solve this problem, so get on with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a regulator's point of view, they're going to have to make sure that um, the this wallet is distinct enough uh, from Telegram so that it's not part of it. But the, the paradox there is, of course, the user... Uh, is going to, you know, want to see that they are connected. So how they manage that balancing act um, will be fascinating to watch. And of course, uh, Telegram is under investigation by the SEC before for this ICO. Uh, never shy of controversy. Indeed. All right, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a, a challenger consultancy and much, much more working to shape the next generation of financial services and change the very fabric of finance itself. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Oliver? I'm not personally that active on Twitter, but my company at BCB Crypto is managed very well by my marketing team. Um, I probably post most of my uh, own stuff on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn slash in slash Oliver Sadie is the best place to get me. Good stuff. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me simon at 11fs.com. I just want to thank, of course, our amazing production team here at 11fs, producers Laura, Petra, Hannah, Olivia, and of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Uh, Thank you for listening. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.